and gentlemen. Uh... Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, I am back in the American Enterprise Institute studio. It's good to be here. Um, we're going to try to do this more and more. And uh, uh, the reason I'm here is that uh, Keith Whittington, uh, one of my favorite eggheads, um, and, I, and, and people on this podcast know I say that with, if not love, then at least admiration, um, uh, from, he's a professor of politics at, at Princeton University, and he is, uh, one of the great examples of the rule that the constitution is too important to leave to the lawyers. Um, he is also, uh, sort of deep in the trenches fighting for academic freedom and free speech issues. And he's a frequent contributor to the dispatch. He's written about Hamlin University and events in Florida recently, uh, for the dispatch, we'll put that stuff in the show notes. Uh, Keith, welcome back to the Remnant. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's nice to be at the Palatial Studios here. It is. It is. Um, I mean, I, I hope the um, the litter carriers didn't jostle you as they brought you in. Oh, uh, I, I forgave them. By which you, you whipped them less. That's right. Um, so uh, why don't we just sort of start big picture? Because it, it feels like my entire life people have been bitching and moaning about <laughs> free speech on campuses right. and um, and free speech in general, right? right? This is one of these American obsessions. Um, it's to our credit that it's an American obsession. Um, sometimes you need a little bit of sort of Jeffersonian paranoia about losing your fundamental freedoms to keep them. But um, are things different now? Better, worse, much worse? My God, sell your bonds worse. <laughs> um, how do you judge it? Um, so I, I think it's very fair to think that we've been complaining about this for a long time, worrying about these kinds of things uh, for a long time. And so what's new? Um, I think there's sometimes a temptation to try to look back and say there's some golden age at some point. Maybe at some time it was really great. And now it's really fallen off. Um, I'm skeptical that there was uh, ever a moment when we could look back and say, oh, yeah, things were really perfect then. Um, but things do seem worse now <laughs> than mm -hmm. they were. Um, for example, when I entered academia, which is now at this point about 25 years ago um, uh, or so, um, there were lots of problems then, uh, to be sure. Um, there were problems when I was an undergraduate student. Um, I was a student at University of Texas, a relatively conservative campus. And yet, nonetheless, um, I think uh, me and my fellow conservatives thought there were certainly problems from a free speech perspective. Uh, for us on that campus at that time uh, in the middle of the 80s. And so, you know, it seemed like that. So if you were going to find a golden age, you would have think for conservative speech on campus, you would have thought that was it. But I think things are uh, noticeably um, uh, worse. And part of what makes them particularly troubling at the moment um, is the threats are coming from so many different directions, mm -hmm. um, that both the left and the right on campus um, have things they can point to that are quite serious um, and disconcerting. Um, there's um, a increasing hostility, even to very basic free speech values um, on both the left and the right, um, that I think is, is quite disturbing. Um, there are uh, internal threats um, in the universities that they no longer 
um, I think, um, have the kind of faith in academic freedom and free speech that really they should. Um, and then there are threats from the outside, um, which there often are, um, uh, but I think they're bigger now than they uh, usually are. Um, so it's a pretty depressing situation, which is one reason why I actually am spending a fair amount of time and energy on this question yeah. uh, right now. On the other hand, it's if it was, uh, oh my God, sell your bonds now, uh, situation, I probably wouldn't bother because <laughs> it wouldn't be worth saving. So I haven't given up yet. That's um, also why they have a tenure. So yeah, no, that helps as well, right? Um, so, or why, why don't we just sort of before we get into the case study thing? Sure. Um, why don't we just sort of uh, list what some of those threats are? You said there yeah. are people on the right said there can point to some serious things, and people on the left can point to some serious things. What are some of these serious things? What are the threats on the inside? What are the threats from out? Yeah, so let's start with what's on the inside. Um, uh, so one thing that is strikingly different now than, for example, some of the free speech battles of the 1990s, uh, where we were very worried about political correctness um, uh, at the time, and there were speech codes being developed on university campuses um, and the like. Um, part of what was um, true about that effort was it was um, sort of top-down, um, led often by administrators, sometimes by uh, faculty. Uh, students often push back um, against that, as did a lot of um, faculty um, toward those speech codes. Um, now, um, on the other hand, the sort of desire to restrict speech um, on campuses uh, certainly continues to come from administrators, um, but they also come from students, um, mm. and increasingly a big swath of the faculty um, as well. And so uh, I think we've had a real sea change in terms of the kinds of commitment to free speech, the interest in free speech, um, that what has historically been a kind of basic constituency for those kind of principles, uh, which is younger generations and students um, and the like. And so we get a lot of internal pressure, and that pressure tends to come from the leftward direction um, and particularly impacts students and faculty on the right, because um, that's the direction that universities lean. Um, the outside pressure, um, on the other hand, often comes from the right and puts pressure on uh, those who are on campus uh, from the left. Some of that lately has been politicians um, in particular. That's true in Florida. It's true in lots of other places. It also comes from sort of uh, what you might think of as sort of conservative activist class uh, more broadly. Um, for quite a long time, there has been a significant infrastructure on the right uh, to sort of monitor what's happening on campuses, uh, call attention to uh, uh, stupid things are happening on campuses oftentimes, um, and then harass faculty and universities um, as a consequence um, of that. Um, I think that's become um, uh, bigger and bolder than it used to be. Social media has helped um, uh, influence that. Uh, Fox News, frankly, is contributing mm -hmm. uh, to that. Um, and that not only leads to sort of personal harassment of academics, which certainly occurs, um, but also real pressure on universities to fire people, for example, if, if uh, they're getting a lot of public attention in that way. I'm going to do a little devil's sure. advocacy, advocacy here. Um, I'm pro, for, pro free speech, right? I am. Uh, I am pro First Amendment, which is a different thing yep. than being pro free speech. And both of which are different than academic freedom, too. And, is, yeah. and, 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 and Right. And so um, when it comes to the free speech rights in this country, I think it is really, really clear and obvious that primarily the First Amendment was about, I mean, in the context of politics, political speech. It, it was, you know, there are other parts of the First Amendment that are about freedom of religion and all that, but freedom of assembly, but part of the reason for all of those freedoms was their understanding of how they could intersect with politics in troublesome ways because founders had learned from the past. So I was always been very sympathetic to the Irving Kristol argument that, you know, freedom of speech is different than freedom of expression. Mm -hmm. And, you know, his famous line about how, 
Um, the left has no problem with an 18-year-old um, uh, being a stripper or being in a pornographic movie so long as they're paid the minimum wage, right? right. Um, I think restrictions on some free expression uh, at the margins, you can make better cases for them than, than our culture would, would mm -hmm. allow. We can get into that if you like, but the, the thing about free speech on campus, the university as an institution predates the concept of free speech, the modern concept of free speech by centuries, right? Yeah. And it seems to me that the academic freedom is very different than free speech. And I have no problem with universities having things like honor codes, right, right all that kind of thing. Um, and so when we talk about free speech, there's a lot of free speech on campus that I'd be perfectly fine, at least in theory, with campuses clamping down on. Mm -hmm. What offends me right. is when academics and scholars uh, and professors and students cannot participate in the free inquiry of, of scholarship and, and education, which is different than some jackasses on the quad being naked saying no blood for oil, right? right. That's a different right. thing. Yeah. And, um, and it seems to me that part of the problem with higher education for the last 40 years or 50 years, it's basically a product of the baby boomers screwed up so much in this country <laughs> is this idea that an essential part of education is being a protest. Like that is the right. right of, like you didn't really have a true college experience if you didn't go around waving a sign or throwing monkey poo at somebody. And I think that's nonsense, right? right? So how do you, is, are these distinctions all angels on a head of the pin at this point? And <laughs> that I, I, you know, I'm, I'm might as well be screaming about how in season three of Star Trek they had Romulans doing things Romulans would never do because it has no relevance to any of these debates anymore. No, I think that those are actually important distinctions. In some ways, I think we're back to um, uh, arguing about some of those distinctions uh, from a different direction than, than the original arguments. But um, I think some of those issues are back on the table. Um, so there's a lot to unpack there, um, and and we can circle back to some of them if you if you want. I should just sort of you have put, free reign to circle, no, or, sure. or right in a straight line, circle right. back. So I just want to put a pin. Serpentine. I just want to put a pin in the initial starting point, thinking about the First Amendment and uh -huh. and sort of expression versus speech within that uh, context. So one of my hobby horses is originalism, um, and uh, certainly I think from an originalist perspective, uh, there's lots of very strong arguments that the First Amendment's much more limited than how the court interprets it uh, now, and we can think about sort of where the right boundaries. Um, are. I've got some views about that, but it's um, potentially, which are relevant to some of the university context because there are sort of interesting questions about to what degree does the First Amendment apply to state universities, for mm -hmm. example. And uh, from an originalist perspective, that's complicated for sure. But even from a doctrinal perspective, given what the court said primarily in the mid-20th century, um, there's some real complications about how to think about how does that play out in practice um, right now. But set aside the First Amendment and set aside the specific context of those state universities and just think about sort of uh, what kinds of free speech rules and academic freedom rules uh, should we want on a university campus, given what universities are trying to do. Early, as you said, universities sort of vastly predate not only the United States, but the First Amendment, sort of these kind of notions about free speech. And moreover, the mission of the university is pretty restrictive relative to thinking about free inquiry in general for a long time. Sure. Right. And so until you get to the late 19th century in the United States, 
the view really about how universities ought to operate is we've got this um, uh, repository of accepted truth and knowledge and the job of professors is to convey that accurately and faithfully uh, to the new generation so they aren't little barbarians and they will grow up to be um, uh, good believers in the true things. Um, and if that sounds your, good so far, yeah, it sounds good so far. Right? <laughs> and so if that's if that's your understanding about how knowledge has developed and what universities are for. There's not a lot of space there for free inquiry and mm-hmm. free speech in general, right? You don't certainly don't need the students uh, speaking very freely, but you really don't even need the faculty doing that very much either, right? They shouldn't really be questioning the inherited verities, um, uh, particularly. And part of what changes in the late 19th century is a is an increasing view that. Uh, in part because of the natural sciences, um, and those are being integrated into universities, uh, it's possible to expand knowledge. It's possible to operate on the frontiers of knowledge. And if you're going to do that, uh, then you have to ask controversial questions and be open to potentially controversial answers um, that people aren't going to like. And universities ought to not simply be about um, conveying to the new generation what the old generation already knows, uh, but instead increasingly also ought to be about pushing the boundaries of knowledge forward. Mm-hmm. And if that's your vision of what universities um, ought to be doing, you need a lot more space for free inquiry. You mm-hmm. need a lot more space for uh, coming up with potentially wrong-headed but controversial opinions um, and the like. And universities really fundamentally restructured in the United States across uh, almost all institutions, although not all, um, in order to make that central to their understanding of the mission. And if once you buy into that notion of what universities are about, it comes with it then the need for certain kinds of academic freedom protections to allow faculty to ask those controversial questions um, uh, without uh, fear of reprisal mm-hmm. um, uh, from alumni or parents or donors or whatever um, who might not like uh, the answers. The free speech for students, I think, really comes much later. It's really a 1960s innovation, right? right? And so, um, uh, because even if that's your notion about what universities all be doing is all be about asking hard questions and expanding the range of knowledge. The students aren't in any position to do that. So there's no real reason to tolerate them having a lot of free speech, even if you think faculty ought to have a pretty wide range. We should also note that the free speech movement, which begins at Berkeley, there are very few late 20th century, uh, quote unquote, movement myths greater than... (laughs) Right. The idea that somehow these were for these people, the free speech movement was actually really for free speech. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, all, it's a very complicated thing. People should read Nat Glazer and commentary about it. Um, we don't need to go down that rabbit hole. I just it's it's one yeah. of my peeves. I just feel like uh, but there but one of the good things about the myth. Right. Is that people began to believe that that's actually what they cared about. And so you did get this generation of sort of baby boomer. Right. Um, and some yeah. early Gen X types right. who actually thought that the free speech movement was about free speech and that free speech is good. Yeah, no, certainly very mixed bag um, among those who are advocating for free speech um, at the time um, and a fair amount of hypocrisy and instrumentalism at that level, right? That they don't, you know, certainly a lot of new left elements that in fact very much do not believe in free speech, right. um, but they're sort of wrapped up in, in the same movement that's giving you the free speech movement um, as um, as such. And that's a long story, I think, in free speech movements, right? You have people who are not necessarily very sincere in their own commitments on free speech, um, and yet they realize that they would like to speak freely, and right. so they start making these larger arguments about the importance of it in these particular contexts. Um, there and, are many analogs in the world of free trade. Yeah, no, exactly, <laughs> right? So it comes up in lots of different contexts, yeah. and um, and it comes up in the free speech context across the board. It comes up in specifically, I think, in this uh, university uh, context, per se. 
Um, and so uh, the origins and the commitments of some of the people advocating for on behalf of free speech are often not very good um, or not very robust. Um, uh, but nonetheless, they're useful for expanding uh, free speech more generally. You might say that about some conservatives uh, mm-hmm. these days about their views about free speech, too. They often talk a good game about it. Um, but once you scratch below the surface very much, uh, you find not a lot of deep commitment. Right. Um, and you find that on both the left and the right. There's nothing unique, I think, about the right in, in this uh, regard. But in any case, so sort of post 1960s, you get a much more robust vision about students having free speech on campus as well. And that comes with all kinds of things. It means, for example, students having a lot more authority to invite people to campus to give speeches, um, mm-hmm. uh, for example, that the faculty don't sign off on, the faculty don't necessarily want on campus, but students get the freedom to bring that. The students have freedom to create little clubs to talk about stuff they want to talk about and all that kind of thing. And so a lot of what we think about student life and a lot of the sort of classic campus free speech kind of debates uh, that we see and, and issues and controversies that arise in general in some ways rest on these sort of 1960s foundations about allowing mm-hmm. students to have those speech rights. And you can imagine totally rethinking that, right? Instead, you imagine, oh, well, you know, we, that's actually a terrible idea. We shouldn't give students that much freedom. Uh, we ought to be much more restrictive. They all listen to the elders much more and only invite the kind of people I think as a professor they ought to invite. Um, that gives you a very different looking university. I don't think it threatens the fundamental attributes and purpose of a university per se if we seriously rethought some of that. Um, but we shouldn't kid ourselves about how much rethinking it would require about mm-hmm. sort of the nature of universities that we've been used to for the last half century or so. A couple, couple points. One, one thing, the point about natural sciences is a good one. Um, and it kind of reminds me, there's some great stuff on the evolution of science, right? So, mm-hmm. like, it, I'm going to screw up dates, but, you know, science and religion were once one unified mm-hmm. whole, right? Science, religion... And to a certain extent, superstition and magic were all kind of right. bound, knotted together. And then over time, you get the separation of, like, there's no reason why in the 14th century you wouldn't think alchemy and science were the same thing, right? <laughs> right, you know? right. And, um, and so over time, you have science stripped out. You have magic that's stripped out of science. Then you have superstition that's stripped out of science. And then it gets really controversial when you start to strip out religion from science, mm-hmm. right? And the conflict between science and religion was a big deal in the time. And you could see why universities needed to have this safe space, as it were, to test those dogmatic boundaries. So it's kind of interesting today when you think about it. No one thinks there's any serious social upheaval or controversy involved in, say, figuring out the origins of the universe, Mm -hmm. right? Right. Um, You can question... You can question heliocentrism if you want, you know, or right, the Copernic, right. whatever. No one cares, right? Right. But on issues like heritability of mm-hmm. various traits, um, various racial things, uh, very all of a sudden gender things, and it tells you, you know, you you know you learn a lot about what what's going on in a society by what certain elites decide out of the taboo subjects, right. and in Galileo's time, the taboos were you know, the nature of the solar system and the stars and all that. And today the taboo subjects are the things that touch on identity politics. Right. So let, let's, let's circle back this, this Hamlin university thing. Right. Right. And it's pronounced Hamlin. Yes. Yes. Uh, David French, uh, who recently quasi departed David French, uh, uh, got into trouble, but for pronouncing it Hamline. Which is how it's spelled. It's how it's spelled. So if you're trying to look it up, it's yeah. it's spelled Hamline, but but I'm told that it's it's pronounced Hamlin. And and David has a 
as a grave, even worse problem with pronunciation of things than, than I do. Uh, um, every time uh, he calls a gif a jif, an angel loses its wings. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, yeah, be that as a me. problem. But I also saw, I, I heard him talking the other day on uh, one of the podcasts that, uh, you know, it, uh, he grew up reading a lot of words, but not yeah. hearing them. And so uh, you then come uh, surprised when you encounter other people say, wait a second, that word I always was speaking in my head right. uh, no, sounds this, this way. And you were telling me it doesn't sound that way. It's and a, I'm very sympathetic to that view. because I, I am I too. I am too. It's a classic <laughs> autodidact problem, right? right? And um, uh, the, I've mentioned this on here before. And again, say we love Noah, Noah Rothman of Commentary. Mm -hmm. Very well-read dude right. and very smart. Like him a lot. But man, oh, Manischewitz, <laughs> does he sometimes have the strangest pronunciations for things right, because right. he just reads them in, and internalizes them in his, his head. I always remember I had a, there was a girl in my class, in a poli-sci class in college, who kept asking, so what are we to make about his, you know, C. Wright Mill's views of the social elites? <laughs> and, uh, right. Uh, anyway, so be that as it may. Um <laughs> Hamlin University, what happened there, and how should how how, how should enlightened people and lovers of free inquiry uh, think about it? Uh, so, so the Hamlin case is interesting in some ways because um, it turns out um, a lot a lot of enlightened people are all on the same side on this one, which is uh. not what we're seeing in general um, on these kind of free speech debates. But so Hamlin um, is a small liberal arts college uh, in Minnesota. Um, they had an instructor who was teaching a class in global art history. Um, who um, uh, included in the class um, a set of uh, paintings um, uh, by a medieval uh, Persian artists um, that depicted uh, the Prophet Muhammad um, uh, uncovered, showing his face. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, these are well-known uh, paintings, um, certainly taught many places, um, uh, certainly a crucial part of global art history, not least of which because it also um, emphasizes the um, complexity of the Islamic tradition um, and art and its representations of uh, Muhammad uh, uh, generally um, uh, and complicates our sort of current version of that story, which becomes relevant uh, to what happens. Um, Interestingly, the instructor in this case um, uh, gave a big trigger warning before she showed the paintings or tried to contextualize it and set it up. And mm -hmm. said, yeah, I'm about to show you these paintings. It was an online class at the time, and so it was all remote. So she also gave them sort of the opportunity to say, you can turn off your cameras now. <laughs> I'm about to show the paintings if you don't want to see them, et cetera. Um, so in some ways, you would have thought she did everything right relative to sort of all the modern norms about what you expect on these things. Um, and then she showed the paintings, and some of the students freaked out. Um, among the students in the class, uh, turns out to have been uh, president of the uh, uh, Student Muslim Society uh, there um, on campus. Um, that student then complained to the university um, uh, that um, she uh, was uh, exposing to students um, something that was against uh, that student's religion, as that student um, understood it. Um, the university um, uh, quickly went into action, as uh, universities often do in these kind of cases, by backing the students who were offended, um, and uh, in this case by uh, publicly denouncing uh, the instructor, um, by um, uh, uh, 
they'd already given her, uh, she was a, a contingent adjunct faculty, so she was working on a semester-by-semester semester basis. They'd already offered her a contract uh, for the next uh, semester um, to teach, but they now withdrew that offer um, and effectively fired her uh, going forward, although they did not remove her in the middle of the semester, which sometimes happens, but they did not um, in this particular case. Um, and then part of what's disturbing about the Hamlin case as well is sort of the president of the university uh, in particular um, has been very vocal um, about um, how uh, sensitivities of students ought to uh, take priority over academic freedom uh, concerns. And so part of what's unusual about the case is just how um, explicit uh, the president was yeah. about what the uh, relative priorities were um, of that um, institution. Um, this got a lot of public attention. Eventually, um, uh, it came to light more publicly, um, and as it started making the circuit more generally, um, a lot of people sort of from across the political spectrum, a lot of academics um, uh, started weighing in, saying the university uh, was very misguided in this. Um, and so part of what is unusual about the situation, it's not just the sort of academic freedom groups like uh, FIRE or the group that I'm involved with, the Academic Freedom Alliance, um, uh, weighing in, but you also sort of a lot more normal um, academics who said this is terrible. Um, and the, the university president is sort of backtracking uh, some on this um, at this point. Um, the board trustees um, at Hamlin has weighed in. And, um, and just the other day, uh, the faculty um, at Hamlin uh, took a vote of no confidence um, and overwhelmingly um, uh, said they no longer have confidence in the president of the institution. Mm -hmm. um, so it's been an interesting um, case, in part um, because it's gotten so much attention. Part of what's interesting about it, um, I think, is is not how it initially played out, because that's actually not that uncommon, I don't think, yeah. um, in modern universities. Um, uh, what's what's striking about the case in some ways was just how explicit the president was about what she was doing um, and how people reacted to it. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, We'll see how things turn out for this specific professor, but yeah. it sounds like a positive case study <laughs> to a certain extent. Um, it is, and the que interesting question is how is that? How do you replicate that in other context? And yeah. um, and so part of what I'm sort of intrigued by with this case is um, why did so many academics from across the board um, wind up uh, pretty quickly agreeing that this was a mistake, mm. that the uh, that the instructor had done nothing wrong in this case. Um, because often that's not true, right? You often, these days, you're getting much more division among academics about these things. If students claim they're offended by something that happened in class, you often see a lot of professors say, oh yeah, sure, and, and, and really terrible things ought to happen uh, to the instructor um, under, in that situation. Um, and you didn't see that kind of division occur um, in this uh, context. Um, despite the fact that the university sort of initially pitched it in sort of the traditional woke kind of terms of uh, students shouldn't be offended. It's their uh, vice president for inclusive excellence who was leading the charge mm. um, in defending the student in this case. They were accusing the instructor of Islamophobia. So all the sort of little buzzwords that often sort of uh, say uh, this is just a traditional case within sort of modern progressive orthodoxy of how universities operate. Um, and yet the way it's played out publicly does not look like that. And um, so the really optimistic version was maybe we've turned a corner on some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I suspect it's a little more idiosyncratic. And so um, uh, I, I'm, I'm not so optimistic. I think we've turned a corner necessarily. But, but it is striking that there's been this kind of uh, a fairly broad consensus in how people reacted. So let's move to uh, leave Minnesota for warmer climes and go, <laughs> go to Florida. Generally um, my preference. Um, a lot of stuff happening down there. A lot of stuff. Uh, how should a 
right of center, lover of liberty and Western civilization, think about what Ron DeSantis is doing <laughs> on these issues. Yeah, I think it's been a pretty mixed bag um, and and makes me uh, nervous um, about how he's uh, responding to some of these things. Um, I am very sympathetic to um, some of the rhetoric that he proposes, certainly some of what politically motivates this and thinking there's a lot wrong on on what's happening on university campuses in general. Um, There's not very much ideological diversity on campuses. There's often a kind of left-wing orthodoxy that has all kinds of consequences that are pretty... Uh, problematic for the scholarly and academic mission of universities. Um, and to some degree, I think state politicians, um, uh, relative state universities, have some uh, genuine and reasonable interest in that kind of problem um, on university campuses. But it's a very delicate issue about, even if you think that's a genuine problem, not everyone does, um, what's the right kind of response to it? And so in Florida, um, I think the response has often been kind of ham-handed um, uh, and uh, not very helpful. Um, although there are certainly some things lately in particular that um, I think require a little more wait and see how it plays out before um, we light our hair on fire quite yet. Um, so one of the things they did was pass the Stop Woke Act, which extended some of these uh, policies that had initially been applied to sort of K-12 through education and employment training context of saying um, that you cannot um, uh, promote um, or compel belief in um, a set of uh, divisive concepts to borrow the language that originally was in a Trump executive order that's now Mm. been incorporated into these things. These are sometimes framed as sort of anti-critical race theory uh, bills uh, more generally. That's now been enjoined by a federal district court um, as uh, uh, violating the First Amendment. Um, and I do think that the way that statute was written um, is deeply problematic for how academic freedom works because it's sort of a direct legislative intervention into, um, uh, in this case, primarily classroom teaching and what kinds of ideas can be presented. Um, just, um, I think that really ought to be out of bounds. Um, and in that sense, it's also sort of really one of the most dramatic things that's happened in the last hundred years in terms of how aggressive legislatures have been in trying to intervene in university classroom teaching. Um, some of the stuff that's getting a lot of attention more recently, on the other hand, I think is more complicated. So um, uh, DeSantis just announced a set of new trustees to be appointed to a small liberal arts college in Florida. Um, unusually, this is a um, state university, um, not a lot of liberal arts colleges in state university systems. Um, I gather this was originally a private um, uh, college that was integrated into the mm. state system at some point. Um, but New College um, is a liberal arts college uh, down in Florida. It's a state university. And as a consequence, then the governor appoints the trustees, um, or at least uh, some significant set of the trustees um, in their case. Um, they, apparently, there's some reputation that New College is uh, kind of lefty in its general um, stylings. Um, that's contested. Some people claim that not nearly as much as it's being sort of publicly represented. I don't have independent knowledge about how uh, left-leaning uh, New College is in particular. Um, I was like, uh, no yeah. offense. I mean, I know right. you have to live in these places, <laughs> but like, right. not particularly lefty is grading on a really no, serious no, that's curve. Right. It grades right? on a serious curve, right? So, no, when I think about this, I, I, it's true. I think about this relative to academic terms, not like relative to the rest of America. Kind right. of terms. I mean, like, if you talk to a normal American and you just you read them again, I don't know, right, but right. I just at random the you know the various you know course titles. Yeah. They teach what, you know, right, and right. that's true of Williams College. That's true of lots of places. Right. 
No question. I mean, I think that's right. I mean, it's uh, it's certainly part of my frustration about universities and where they are these days. Um, uh, I've been warning for quite some time now that um, there's going to be political consequences to the fact that uh, universities across the board um, have hardly any conservative faculty in them. There are big swaths of universities where there are practically no uh, conservative faculty. Um, uh, Huge chunks of the humanities, for example, there's hardly any. that's uh, not great from an academic uh, perspective and how we ought to be just thinking internally with our own values about how they work, but it's just setting us up for political reprisal down the road because um, that's going to have some consequences. Um, and especially at state universities, it's going to have some consequences. And so totally grading on scale here. It's totally a question of, of, of not relative to sort of normal America, how left-leaning is New College, but relative to academia, how left-leaning right. um, is New College. There's some people who say it's sort of it's like Evergreen State, which is sort of this... Um, uh, particular sort of nightmare scenario yeah, that played yeah. out a few years ago. Um, and, and I gather it's nothing like that. It's much more like a, most New Arts colleges in this regard, um, which is to say very left-leaning but not totally crazy. Um, Menshevik, I, not Bolshevik. Yeah, exactly, yeah, right. Yeah. So uh, so anyway, so they appointed board trustees, um, and part of what, which is totally within the authority of the governor to do. But what's unusual about appointing the, uh, the trustees to a new college is, one, they come with a fairly explicit mandate from the governor to try to remake uh, the college um, so that it's more uh, what they're pitching is sort of classical uh, laborious education. There's been references to it ought to be like the Hillsdale of the South mm-hmm. um, uh, down there. And and so it's interesting that they have this sort of explicit mandate from the governor. You're supposed to go in and shake the place up and change it, which is um, unusual as as governors appoint trustees. To also difficult for two trustees to do, right? He appointed two. How many well, in appoint? this case, it's like a slate of like six. So it's oh, a okay. significant number. Maybe I've only heard of two. Well, one's Chris Rufo. Well, some are very good. <laughs> and one's Charles Kessler, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and But also Mark Berline, who is a emeritus professor of uh, English literature, um, who uh, uh, spent most of his career at Emory University, uh, uh-huh. for example. Um, um, uh, I'm blanking, frankly, on the name. Of, one's a dean at um, Hillsdale College. There's a, uh, a, a guy who uh, has a, a private charter school, I believe, uh-huh. um, there in Florida, um, and then somebody else as well. Okay. And so part of what's... So it's a big slate, and uh-huh. so they actually have some votes. Yeah, <laughs> relative yeah, yeah, no, to six the is different size. than two. Yeah, yeah and, and it's a fairly small board of trustees, so uh-huh. it's a significant chunk of the trustees. But the other feature of it that's quite distinctive, I think, in that sense, um, is that uh, these are people who know how universities operate to a much greater degree, right? Yeah. The, the standard sort of trustee that gets appointed to these things are um, uh, deep-pocketed donors mm-hmm. um, and alums. Um, uh, and so... Biggest Ford dealer in the South. Yeah, exactly, yeah, right? Yeah. And so they don't necessarily... They have views about universities. They don't really understand them very much. Yeah. Um, uh, and um, that's not true. These are strategic and sophisticated people. They're being appointed. They have some real expertise. Yeah. Um, and as a consequence, some of the traditional kinds of arguments that academic freedom advocates would make about why trustees shouldn't be involved, which is you don't understand, and so mm-hmm. you shouldn't be meddling with something you don't understand is much less true in the context mm-hmm. of these people. Um, and they're more sophisticated about how to actually uh, get their fingers in there and actually uh, change things mm-hmm. um, in ways that normal trustees really tend not to really understand how to do. So they know actually which levers to pull that would actually have consequences. Um, so it, it sets us up for a real battle, I think, between sort of the authority of the board of trustees and the authority of the existing uh, faculty and leadership um, of the university about um, all kinds of features of that university, including curriculum issues, including faculty hiring issues. Um, 
And uh, so I think there, uh, I'm sort of taking the posture of sort of watchful waiting to see sort of how this plays out. Um, I don't have a lot of confidence in Christopher Rufo's um, uh, commitments to academic freedom on mm-hmm. this front. Um, I think there are other people that, that DeSantis could have appointed who would both share some of his concerns about academia, but also care about academic freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, and he didn't choose those people. Um, and so uh, it makes me nervous about how this is likely to go. Um, but, oh, you so, know, I want to see what they actually do before I get too upset about it. Yeah, so also, again, yeah. I, there's a lot about DeSantis's performative stuff I yes. don't like. Right. There's a lot about DeSantis's, uh the way he picks battles mm-hmm. s- seems too, he has his ear to the ground of Twitter too much. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And of cable news. And that all said, um, uh, at the same time, I probably agree with a lot of his stated concerns, particularly if you shave off the pugnacious rhetoric. Yes. And you, you, you know, if, if he wrote a rough draft of his concerns and then gave it to Keith Whittington and you took out some of the adverbs and whatnot and some of the ad hominem, the thrust of it would probably be the same yeah, in a yeah, lot of cases, yeah, right? Yeah. And certainly I agree with a lot of that stuff. And no, and if you read actually his prepared remarks on these things, they're often actually not bad. Yeah. Um, and But he gives these long press conferences in which he's willing to riff on things and the rhetoric yeah. starts leaning in on some of these things a little more. And so, you know, he plays both sides on this. But so, yeah. but I guess my real question is put the politics out yeah, of it. Yeah. I mean, obviously he, it just seems, this doesn't mean he's wrong or anything like that, but yeah. it's, uh, presidential politics is what's right. going on here, sure. and we just acknowledge <laughs> that, right? Right. That said, right. in the grand scheme of things, right. I want to ask this in a way that conveys the, the, the essence of what I'm getting at. Who gives a rat's ass about <laughs> New College? And what, yeah. I, what I mean by that is, right. is like, um, I despise right. the, the modern definition of diversity which is this, it's, it's almost entirely about identity politics, mm-hmm. and it is almost entirely about conformity. It's right. like we should have lots of people who look different, right. have different grievances, right. but basically all are part of the same coalition of the oppressed right. and all agree about the same politics, right? That's not meaningful diversity to yeah. me. You know, yeah. It's like when Bill Clinton used to say he wanted a cabinet that looked like America, and what he meant was right. 17... Right. millionaire left-wing lawyers who all look like they could have been in a Benetton ad when they right. were teenagers, right? right? And so what I really want is diversity of institutions. Yeah. Ron DeSantis, first of all, let's just sort of stipulate that there are, for the sake of argument, a thousand, I know there are more, but let's say there are a thousand small liberal arts yeah. colleges in America. Right. He has zero authority to do anything with... 999 of them, right? Uh, It's basically new college. He can't do anything to academic liberty or any other institutions outside of Florida. He can't really do anything to most of the institutions inside of Florida, either for political reasons or constitutional reasons. Mm -hmm. What is wrong with a little experimentation um, and a little sort of like, you know, we're going to pick this not particularly highly ranked or influential. It's not like he is... It's not like like let's let's put something new on the Sistine Chapel, right? right? right. That's not what he's doing here, right? This right. is a this is this is a pretty expendable school in the grand scheme of things, <laughs> right? Right. Um, and 
And so, like, what is the? It's let's, a small let's, school, but there are those who love it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's true. That's true. But let's but let's right. uh, let's say he's a threat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's say that he is violating academic freedom right. in some significant and meaningful right. way. Where is the transit of property here? Is it yeah. just a slippery slope argument? Yeah. So. Um, yeah, the, the Twitter response to this is a little interesting, right? Because I think you're right that it's it's like many things on on Twitter, for example, right? That suddenly there are all these experts on things that no one knew anything about two days ago. Yeah, and, and suddenly everybody's an expert on it. And the new college thing is sort of similar. No one ever heard of new college two days ago, and suddenly everybody's like, "Oh, new college is the most important place in the world." <laughs> uh, we all have deep feelings about it. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's no question, right? New college is uh, they're. Uh, Different reports as just um, how much they're failing in terms of things like enrollment goals uh-huh. um, and budgetary issues and stuff like that. Um, but it's a small place, not that uh, notable uh, in the big scheme of things, um, for sure. Um, and I, moreover, am very much a believer both in sort of intellectual diversity on campuses. I think we ought to have a wider range of people with different views and not just sort of, as you say, sort of diversity on one dimension um, that people care a lot about and with some good reason. But care nothing about the intellectual and political diversity that I think is also critically important to how universities ought to be operating from an intellectual perspective. And I'm also a pluralist about institutions. And mm-hmm. so I'm perfectly happy to have lots of different kinds of institutions in the higher education space uh, with very different conceptions of their own mission. I certainly prefer something with very robust protections uh, for academic freedom, for example, but perfectly okay with me if you want to go to an institution that does not have robust academic freedom commitments, if everybody knows what they're getting into uh, when they go, you know, then consenting adults can do what they want. But I, I, right? I, I just want to, I want, I want to yeah. squeeze on this a little yeah, bit yeah, just yeah. because it's not like, I, I don't know a lot about the service academies, you know, yeah. West Point, right. you know, uh, right. Naval Academy, whatever. Right. I suspect that there's a good deal of right. academic freedom. There's less free expression. Yes. Right, and a lot less free expression, and interestingly, the academic freedom stuff is relatively new. Uh-huh. Um, so they've only recently adopted policies that are pretty robust in their protection of academic freedom. Traditionally, they didn't think there was a lot of space for academic freedom on those campuses. Okay, but, but which is interesting, but yeah, which I didn't know much about until relatively recently. Yeah, but either, so. but I think right. my point would be is yeah, like, yeah. so what? Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. like right. like the the oppressiveness for some historian right. teaching Thucydides. Right is not very pronounced, right? And, um, but I think most normal people, including a lot of academics, would say, well, of course, West Point can't be like Kenyon. Right. Right? Right. Um, And I think you need some minimal conceptions. I'm not even sure you need minimal conceptions of academic freedom so long as whatever rules you have are clear and explicit. Right. Going in, both to the students, the parents of the students, right. the trustees, the professors, everybody knows yeah. we do things differently here, right? right? And right. so plural, pluralism of institutions right. only works if you have different kinds of institutions that are sticky. Yeah. And they can only be sticky if they have different rules. Right. And so would this country be worse off if 10% of the universities violated the ideal versions of academic freedom and another 10% of universities went whole hog in dialectical response into hyper-commitment to yeah. academic freedom and let kids decide, right? I mean, like, right. there are a lot of people who would like to go to a school where they got zero identity politics right. and there was just pure old-style scholarship and academics. Right. 
And you can say, well, that's bad for academic freedom because academics need to be able to, you know, let their freak flies, freak flags fly. Right, right. And you can say, yeah, okay, fine. Send them to a different yeah. school. But there are other people who really just want STEM or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it doesn't seem like that, that makes this country worse off to have a more robust sense of, you have to have truth in advertising, but a more robust sort of diversity of institutions. Yeah, so um, so I think that's basically right. Um, I don't mind that there's a lot of different institutions, and I don't even mind that um, uh, some of them want to go whole hog, and we don't care very much about academic freedom on this side. One of the things I sort of like about the Hamlin situation in some ways is that president's much more explicit. I mean, the problem mm-hmm. with the problem with Hamlin's situation is they they actually had um, academic freedom policies on the books, right, which right, which right, she right. completely ignored. They were very traditional and very robust um, in what they said. Um, and so part of what's intriguing about that situation is there's a policy on the books that everyone thought they had signed up for, and then she's giving a very different message about how she thinks about academic freedom. Part of what I have found very disturbing about a lot of much more well-known Lombard's colleges than Hamlin um, is they behave as if uh, what she said is true. Right. Um, uh, and they won't be explicit, but they're not nearly as explicit about it. Um, and so they won't just say, you know what, we actually care more about social justice and we care about academic freedom here. Um, everybody's on board with that. And if you don't like it, don't come here. Um, and there's some institutions that that's what they want to do and they're more willing to be explicit about it, more power to them. Um. I don't know if I told this story on here before. Um, when my daughter, we were looking for mm-hmm. grade school, mm-hmm. um, or you know, K through twelve school, and uh, Georgetown Day School in D.C. is famously progressive, right? Um, proudly progressive yeah. of their heritage of being progressive, because basically a bunch of communist Jews and blacks in the nineteen forties got together to work around segregation right. and. Good for them, and they're, they have every right to be very right. proud about it. Right. And it's a very good school, right? right? Um, at the same time, it is wildly crazy left-wing. Yeah. And one of the weirdest things when we were going to different schools to look for a place to send our daughter, um, virtually every school but one, the one we ended up sending her to, they all thought that their commitment the diversity was their comparative advantage, uh-huh. right? It's right. like, not only do we care about diversity, we care about it more than all those other schools, right, right, right? right? And Georgetown Day just took it to the nth degree where the headmaster came in and said, I want you, I know you're looking at a lot of schools. I was opening, it was like a parent's open, uh, open mm-hmm. house thing, right? And says, I want you to look, yeah, I know you're looking at a lot of schools. There are a lot of good schools out there. I want you to look at their 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 mission statements, Mm -hmm. their catalogs, right? And you'll see a lot of, this is almost like a direct quote, you'll see a lot of buzzwords there and buzz phrases like, and then he makes air quotes, academic rigor (laughs) and scholarship. And he said, we just want you to know up front that while we care about academics, our top priority is social justice and you should know that. And I kind of figured that out when they told us that they had a day, uh, a free mumia day. Right. But uh, um, I was really grateful for it. Right. Right. You know, it's like you you let me know up front yeah. what you're doing here and then I can make my own decisions. And right. so I, I have no problem with like hardcore Catholic yeah. schools right. doing that. Yeah, yeah. Hardcore, you know, uh, STEM schools. Just be honest about what you're where you're going to where you're going to break ties in conflicts right. and let people make those decisions on their own. Yeah, no, I think that's that's basically my view about these things in general. 
you know, I have normative critiques about those as being sort of bad ideas. You sure, sure, sure. I do it, too. Right? Yeah, yeah. And I'm perfectly happy to say that. But I do want to sort of distinguish between sort of what I think my own personal preferences are and why there's good reasons not to do that versus sort of institutionally is that the appropriate thing to do. So, you know, in the Academic Freedom Alliance, for example, has really tried to be kind of careful to say what commitments has this particular institution made to the people on that campus um, before we weigh in and say, oh, you behave very badly? Because mm -hmm. it's entirely possible there are places, and some places have, who behave inconsistent with traditional academic freedom principles. But then you look at their policies and say, well, you know what? Right. They sort of told you that's what they were going to do. Right. And, and at that level, um, uh, you know, everyone knew what they were getting. Right. Uh, and so maybe it's a bad idea, but, you know, but but that's a different question. It's like if you have a core curriculum, you, yeah, you right. can't. If you knew the school had a core curriculum. You can't complain. Wait, I have to take math. Wait, now I have right? to do this. No, exactly right. So, and so like, so I think then, so that I think that's true in general. So that goes back a little bit to the First Amendment problem, though, about the complication of state institutions and what sort of the mm -hmm. range of freedom they have on this kind of issue, um, and also questions about what's the process by which you get there mm -hmm. um, in terms of creating this sort of diversity of institutions um, and the like. Um, and the First Amendment stuff, I think, is not all clear. It's actually very complicated to figure out exactly what kind of political inventions are reasonable on individual campuses. So, so to take a sort of much less controversial kind of question than this kind of um, uh, social justice diversity kind of stuff, for example. Just imagine, for example, the state legislature wants to say, um, uh, we really want uh, one law school associated with this institution, and we want um, this other institution to really specialize in natural sciences and engineering, mm -hmm. and we're going to prioritize that and how we structure these things. And so then the question is, well, how, what's appropriate for the government and through various governmental entities, whether it's through statute or through appointing trustees and whatnot, um, to really have a strong guiding hand at a state institution saying, no, no, you don't get a law school. Um, because we got one over here and that's what we're going to do. And we're not going to build up your humanities because you're a natural science place. Mm. And that's where we want the resources and, and whatnot. Um, and you can imagine that's potentially part of what's going on at, at um, New College um, mm. at that level. Similar kind of decisions on more politically controversial things, um, but nonetheless sort of similar kind of decisions about what's the priority here and how we're going to do it. Um, so there's some process questions, I think, about what that ought to look like. How much faculty involvement should there be in sort of making some of those decisions um, and the like? What do you do about current faculty? So there's been some very loose talk among some of the newly appointed trustees, for example, about um, firing faculty, about going in and sort of giving them the curriculum from on mm -hmm. high, that this is what you're going to be teaching from here on out kind of things. I think um, creates a really s slippery slope in terms yep. of sort of the relationship between trustees and universities. I no, think I think so, that's bad. You can't yeah. make professors right. teach things they don't believe And you to can't be just true. go in and fire all the existing faculty and say, we don't like what you are doing. Yeah. We're going to bring in a whole new set. On the other hand, if the new trustees come in and say, you know what, you have not been giving enough attention to this, and, and the state has decided we want to be giving more attention to the classics, for example, and we're going to sort of create some initiatives and programs and hire some faculty to do that kind of thing, I think that's perfectly fine and appropriate, which is why I say I'm sort of taking sort of a watchful attitude about what happens at New College. So do they do this in the sense of we're going to build up some stuff mm -hmm. um, that emphasizes things we'd like more, um, or we're going to burn it all down um, in order to sweep the place clean, and, and then we're going to build on top of that. Um, there have been other places that are in other sort of initiatives. Nothing, I think, in some ways as bold as New College, in part because New College is relatively small, so you can imagine doing some things. But, you know, so, for example, at Arizona, there's a, um, uh, a new... 
um, I forget what they call it, whether it's school or college or something. Yeah, like no, there's one in both at Arizona State and yes. the University of Arizona. Yeah, exactly, yeah. right? So it's sort of a design, it's sort of civics education, and sort yeah. of leadership kind of statesmanship kind of stuff. has sort of a conservative flavor to it. Mm. It's hired faculty, has a curriculum, all that kind of stuff. Right? I spoke at one of them. It was very impressive. No, they're people. good. Yeah. I, I know a lot of people there. They're great people. They do good, very interesting things there. Um, and part of what I like about that model, though, is it's sort of adding to what mm. exists on the campus more generally, right? So the, the state government says, you know, look, we want more of this kind of thing, and we're going to add some stuff to the existing university in order to do more of that. Perfectly fine model, perfectly reasonable way of approaching it, I think, in general. And so if that's what happens at New College, then I'm fully on board. Um, and if instead it becomes, um, uh, you know, we're going to... Uh, you know, sow the place with salt and then uh, and, and, and do something else, um, then it's going to be a different story. And so um, I think people have set their hair on fire maybe a little too early. I understand why they have um, on some of this uh, on some of this front, but um, it does depend on how they proceed. I think it's just how troubling we ought to think this actually is. Um, do you have an opinion about this uh, AP advanced placement fight? Going on in Florida? I don't have a strong opinion about it in part because I don't know enough about the details of the um, uh, curriculum being proposed. I, in principle, I think there's, I mean, so again, as, as the Twitter fight plays out and sort of public fighting plays out on this, there is sort of this uh, sort of weird sort of set of extremes I think have been carved out in some sense as if state governments ought to do nothing to um, evaluate whether they like what is advanced placement mm -hmm. um, uh, people are putting in place. So we've completely outsourced our uh, educational goals to some private entity that's right. going to design AP classes. Perfectly appropriate for state governments to say, no, no, it's our governance, it's our schools. We and, and, you know, that's true of some of the sort of K through 12 meddling in general, right? That the fact of the matter is these are government schools. The government determines what the curriculum is in those schools. They have a government message they want to convey through those schools. Um, and so there's a lot of authority for the government to intervene there. And that's true of these AP tests, just like there is everything else. Yeah. And also, I just flatly, I mean, I'll just say it right. preemptively. Most of the people complaining about the government meddling right. are liars in yes. the sense that <laughs> if the meddling was going the other way. No question. They'd be in favor of it. If, if the college board was yeah. saying, you know, giving a sort of the dead white male version of history is the only thing you need to know. They'd be say, you'd have progressive governors going in saying, this is outrageous, we live in a diverse society, yada, yada. So no it's, 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 it's free speech for me, but not for thee. It's free trade for me, not for thee. It's so much of that stuff. I just, I dis, uh, probably unfairly for some people who are sincere, um, but I just discount it because it's just one of those what team jersey do you have kind of argument. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right, which is why I think the details, again, sort of matter. Is sure. Sort of, is, is this actually a bad curriculum? Are there good um, uh, scholarly reasons to think that they um, uh, haven't done what they should have in designing this curriculum? I think it's plausible that it uh, could use some real tweaking um, again, though, some of the rhetoric surrounding it coming out of Florida is also sort of, For sure. oh, we don't want you to talk at all about uh, intersectionality or um, uh, the connection between um, uh, gays and lesbians and the black movement. It's like, you know, look, that's part of the story about about how black politics have played out over the last half century. And you need to have that story, too. Yeah. OK, so uh, I'm going to push back on that. Yeah, sure. Um I got no problem with yeah. some college course teaching about that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But like this, this is just merely the 
yeah. free speech, academic freedom facet of a much larger critique that I have right. of, of the left and liberalism and, and increasingly right. The, the right and conservatism, but yeah. it's, they're just different, right? Yeah. yeah. Look, uh, let me take it out of these issues just to illustrate the point for a second. Every Democrat I, you know, of any national prominence talks about how we need fundamental transformation of this, that, or the yeah. other thing, right? right? Uh, we right. need to rethink all of these things. Yeah. We need uh, Green New Deal, whatever, right, you know, right. whatever, right? And seems to me I'd be much more willing to have that conversation right. if the liberals running, say, big cities... Right. Did the stuff they're supposed to do well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, it's like, first show me <laughs> right. that you can do, that the garbage can get cleaned right. up, that you can have a graduation rate right. better than 50%, right? That kids can be literate yes. uh, when they graduate right. from high school. Right. Um, and so on the, on, on the AP thing, first of all, I looked it up very, very briefly because yeah, I thought yeah. I was going to have to talk about this on CNN. But like, <laughs> um, the AP history requirement, right. which still exists, right. covers a lot of yes. Black history in America, yes, totally. and rightly so. I, I think it's a colorable argument that, no pun intended, that you could uh, uh, you could argue that they cover too much. Yep. yep. Right. Um, that maybe we should know more about some yeah. other things. But that's totally reasonable. You got to right. talk about civil rights. You got to talk about right. slavery. You got to talk yep. about the Civil War. Have yep. to be part of standard AP history stuff, right. right? The idea that somehow there's so there's such a shortage of that stuff in yeah. AP history yeah, yeah, yeah. that you have to create this other AP thing for Black Studies or African American right. Studies strikes me as unpersuasive. Right, right, right. Um, in the same way that I I think it would be really interesting to know about you know Jewish studies. Right. Sure. Do I think it's worth the time of right. any right. high school system in the country that is not doing well or, or, or not at least I think yeah. Florida schools are actually pretty good, but like right. not doing well enough at the basics right. to sort of slap that on? Right. I mean, like it, all AP says is that you get to advance into a right. better, you know, a more advanced class in college. Right. Um, and so. Slapping that down does not bother me, particularly right. since it's only happening in one of 49, uh, the one state out of 50, right? right? right. Um, like, at the same time, it just bothers me because it's, it's, it's a little bit like the Seinfeld returning the coat for spite. I'm sure <laughs> that he believes what he's doing right. in a certain sense, but he wouldn't be doing if it weren't for this sort of larger presidential politics stuff oh no yes that's that's certainly an unfortunate feature <laughs> this is right the political motivations are fairly transparent um and and that sets the whole debate uh going in general um and and i'm with i'm certainly with you in thinking that look the the public education in the k-12 through level um has a lot more problems than this right um and so this is sort of a very uh, boutique uh, kind of uh, dispute to be having uh, relatively um, speaking. Um, but, you know, but nonetheless, it's a real sort of issue about sort of, okay, what kind of AP classes should we have in general? What should the content of those AP classes look like, et cetera? Some of those things seem pretty niche. But, you know, on the other hand, some places do that kind of stuff. For example, my daughter, um, who went to public school in Princeton, took a sociology class in high school. There was certainly no sociology class on offer when I was in high school in my public school uh, down in Texas. 
Um, I think of that as being a sort of unusual kind of thing to be offering to high school students, not really crucial. Um, but, you know, if it it's, can be on the menu, if you've got lots of things going on. Um, and likewise, I think that's probably true of African-American AP history as well. Um, uh, not the core thing we'll be doing, but certainly part of the menu, maybe, if, if you have a very big menu. Um, and then, like I said, I haven't looked at it closely enough to think, would I actually have serious academic uh, from an academic perspective, serious qualms about sort of how this thing is actually designed. It's tough to design classes like this. What gets included, what doesn't get included. You're putting lots of stuff in. It's hard to make those choices. I certainly appreciate that. Um, I'm struck by uh, students arriving at Princeton University. A lot of them have taken AP history. Um, and as a consequence, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that they know a tremendous amount of stuff about the things the AP history covers. Mm -hmm. um, so they learn a lot of stuff that I had no idea about when I was their yeah, age, right? Yeah. Um, and they know it really well. On the other hand, there's just like these massive gaps because it's yeah. not covered by AP history. And as a consequence, they never heard of it that yeah. I think of as being quite important. And so it's like, so there's this weird sort of thing that just is a feature of these things of, of there are going to be gaps and holes and things that get covered too much and things that are not covered enough. And, um, and that's sort of the way it works. So I, I'm open to the idea that there are genuine academic issues with the way this thing is designed. I haven't seen enough in the political debate that suggests that that's a, the serious, real issue. a real issue yeah. or a very serious issue. I think the other thing, though, it goes to, and it goes back to the intellectual diversity of universities uh, point in general, um, is uh, which is to say, you know, not only should governments not be sort of totally outsourcing their curriculum to, you know, the people that do um, advanced placement stuff, but it's also true um, that if you are a conservative, um, uh, how much faith do you have in the kinds of institutions that are doing these things, right? And so if you look at what teacher unions are doing in K through 12 and the kind of decisions they're making, it's very easy from a conservative perspective to say, I just don't have a lot of faith in those people um, because they don't take my concerns seriously. There are no conservatives as part of that um, process. They're very self-interested in their own reasons because it's teacher unions and whatnot. And as a consequence, I have a lot more skepticism about what's going on there than I should. And unfortunately, right, that's true of now public health. Um, we think that's true. Mm -hmm. It's true of universities, right? Um, um, and it's, I think, true in this context of AP uh, design as well, right? And so if AP could very credibly say, no, no, we're hearing from experts from the right and left and building these curriculum, and so you ought to have a lot of faith in what we're doing because we're actually genuinely going into it um, uh, with um, a broad perspective and get a diversity of views, right? You'd have a lot more credibility and you wouldn't have these kinds of concerns. But instead, I think at this point, partially conservatives, I think, are just predisposed to thinking um, they're shut out of a lot of these kinds of things. And as a consequence, they ought to be highly skeptical mm -hmm. of everything that comes out of them. And that's terrible for how society operates and how these institutions operate. And, I, and again, it's a good reason why you need more intellectual diversity in these kind of things in order to try to build that credibility rather than undermine it. And I don't know enough about how AP is being designed. I try to do, I've done some work on civic education and teacher training and the like. And I think it's important in part that, that I be involved in that because part of the goal is to say, they ought to be hearing a range of voices on this stuff. Um, and they shouldn't all be hearing from one side as teachers are thinking about how to develop their curriculum for high school and junior high, for example, in history and, and politics um, and the like. And so it's, it's important that these kind of institutions build trust with all the constituencies out there, and, and they just haven't. Uh, and so they are setting themselves up uh, for these kind of political fights as a consequence. Yeah, I mean, I would just sort of add that I mean, I think Princeton's an exception to this. I think there are lots of exceptions to this. Sure. But as a, on broad brushstrokes, there's just a simply, part of that skepticism, I think you're absolutely right, has to do with being frozen out from a process. Yeah. yeah. 
part of it has to do with the actual substance of what's being, yeah, yeah. being taught, right? Yeah. I mean, like, um, a lot of politics and history at the academic level yeah. these days is basically organization of various grievances. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, the sort of Howard Zinn view of history where there were no good deeds and the history of this country is the history of victims right, right. who, uh, and, um, and that's, you see, so you get, I mean, you get a lot of older people yeah. who, I mean, I, I think it's, I, I, we don't have time to get into the yeah, identity yeah. politics stuff, but like, there are a lot of people who want to believe they live in a good country yeah. and, and they and I'm I'm one of these people who's happy to argue that 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 is a defensible position, right? Right. Despite many bad things that were done, right? Um, but so when you're locked out of the process and you see the end result yeah, yeah. is this just unremitting, uh, you know, uh, I'll keep things clean here, urinating <laughs> on the United States of America from a great height, right? Um, and and also there's a there's a there's real, so like, I guess this is the last question for yeah, you because yeah. we've got to wrap this up. Sure. But like, um, it seems to me there's an enormous amount of dishonesty. You sort of touch on a little bit yeah. about the Twitter reaction to this. But like, um, when the whole critical race brouhaha erupted, like I knew, I was one of these people who actually knew what critical race yeah, theory yeah, was right, and what right. critical legal, all that stuff was because I got some of it in college sure. and I'd written some about it beforehand. And I'm not saying I was an expert on it, but I was. Yeah, yeah. And I've always thought that there was, as I've written a bunch of times, there's some real merit to yeah. it. Um, um, but the way in which, I think part of the problem that we have in this country, and one of the reasons why we're so polarized, is that elite media is basically an extension of elite campus culture. Yeah. And these people have a deep and abiding interest in defending people that they went to school with, defending people that they are in the same social milieu of, um, and defending people who are the sources of the sorts of dogma that got them their jobs in the first place. Right. I mean, uh, just as an analogy, it's sort of like the Columbia Journalism School. The people most invested in hiring Columbia Journalism School graduates are Columbia Journalism School graduates. Right. Um, and it's a guild, right? right? And um, similarly, if you made it through all the hoops that a complex, you know, what our definition of meritocracy is today, made it through all the hoops of speaking the right shibboleths yeah. about social justice this and identity politics that, and that got you into these elite schools, and that got you the grades in these elite schools, and it got you your job and the job interviews, you have a, you have a financial, never mind right. psychological investment in this stuff. And so whenever higher education and intellectuals or the new class, whatever you want right. to call it, come under fire, yeah. the press basically is is the f the fighting wing of academia in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And so when critical race theory came up, yeah, a lot of people yeah. on the right were saying stupid things. Right. But critical race theory is a thing. Yeah. And I can't tell you how many people on like MSNBC were saying it's a myth. Right. Right. Um, and the people don't know what they're talking about. No one teaches yeah. it. And it was very Jesuitical. What they were saying was right. no one actually teaches, which is not true yeah, anyway, yeah. but no one actually teaches the course on critical race theory. Right. But critical race theory informs lots of courses, right? right? right, right. It's very similar to the problem that the, 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 the non-permeable barrier between these institutions that all think alike, yeah. the defund the police thing is a great example yeah, of this, yeah. right? Or our Latinx stuff, sure. right? 
MSNBC, young MSNBC producers just assume, oh, very left-wing professor says something right. interesting about defunding the police. That makes it serious and worth putting out on the air. <laughs> and it was spectacularly stupid, right. really bad for the Democratic Party. Right. Right. But there was no skepticism because yeah. fish don't know they're wet. Right. And so smashing up that system, I think, would be good for the country. Yeah, yeah. A lot of dumb things would be done in the process. Right. But um, I, I don't think the current way it's done is sustainable. And so, like, I know I was yeah. supposed to frame a question, but, like, <laughs> where, 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 do you, like, where do you come down and how do you adjudicate this, the sort of Mott and Bailey aspects of, of the critical race theory, you know, argument? Yeah, I think in that specific context, I think you described it exactly correctly. Uh, there's a lot of Mott and Bailey aspect to how that argument played out, uh, which was very frustrating uh, to watch um, because I think there are serious issues there that we actually should be able to take more seriously. And so uh, certainly part of what I'm depressed by about our public discourse in general um, is it's often very stupid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and I often wish that it was not so stupid and it was possible to have more nuance. It was possible to be more careful um, about how these kind of debates uh, uh, play out and are thought about. Um, part of what I always appreciated by academia, part of why I wanted to make my home and career in academia, was because I experienced it as a place where ideas were taken very seriously. Um, and it was possible to have nuance. It was possible to think those things through. Part of what I'm distressed about um, at the moment with academia is it seems less true than it once was. And I worry very much um, that if we continue on this trajectory in 20 years time, um, academia is going to be no better than our sort of political discourse more generally on these things. We're not going to take ideas very seriously. We're not going to be able to grapple with the substance um, of these questions. We aren't going to be open to genuine criticism when things are problematic and, and there are uh, genuine concerns to be raised um, about uh, some of these, uh, some of these um, issues. Um, I don't think academia is a lost cause yet in that mm -hmm. regard, but, but I have a lot of sympathy with those who want to say we got to seriously shake this thing up because it's going in a really bad direction um, and there's a lot of bad things uh, flying under the banner um, and, and we can't just circle the wagons around this and say, oh, we're going to protect it all. We're going to shield it all from criticism um, uh, because it's happening in a university, therefore you can't criticize it. There's lots of things happening in universities that ought to be criticized um, and, and because they're substantively mistaken. And so I'm in this weird sort of balancing act of trying to say, on the one hand, I want to take those criticisms seriously, and I sometimes want to engage in those criticisms. On the other hand, I also think it's critically important that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater um, at the end of the day, and we, that we are able to preserve um, free inquiry on these campuses as well. And it's, it's hard to engage in the kind of serious reform and challenge um, that a lot of people think universities need um, uh, without uh, potentially um, uh, damaging that element of universities. Um, so I worry that these are very fragile institutions and, um, and there are pressures on both the left and the right that I think can really screw them up um, in, the, in the long term. Um, and um, I, I, I'm not terribly optimistic that we're going to be able to navigate through this um, and preserve those institutions in a way that I would hope that they get preserved. Um, but, you know, but, but I'm trying to help. And, and it is, in part, I think, a balancing act of how do you think, okay, what kind of reforms are necessary? What kind of substantive critiques are necessary? 
um, but also what are the important values underneath that that you want to try to preserve in the process. And part of what I worry about in places like Florida, for example, now is there's a lot of emphasis on the on the first aspect of that, not not enough concern about the second aspect of that. All right, so sell some of your bonds. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. Uh, Keith Whittington of Princeton, and I forgot to mention earlier, the Hoover Institution yeah. and the head of the Academic Freedom Alliance. Academic Freedom Alliance. Uh, great to have you uh, back on. We'll have you on again because there, there are more, um, more of these arguments to be had. Um, sure. So thank you. Okay, so uh, Keith Whittington has left the studio, and uh, always good to talk to him. And I'm sure I'm going to get some um, snarky feedback from one direction or another for today's podcast, and so be it. Um, such as the life I have chosen. And um, um, again, fond for, it's not really farewell. I mean, David's going to keep doing advisory opinions. Um, he'll do some of the dispatch lies. We'll have him back on the remnant um, at some point. Um, and, uh, but it's still bittersweet to have David go off to um, the New York Times, David French, that is. We've had, just so everyone you know, realizes, we've had no net loss in David's because David Drucker has come aboard this week and we're very excited about that. And, um, that is, he's a really important and valued, um, addition, um, a, because he's just great, but B, because, you know, we've always said that we really want to emphasize reporting and that's, that is what David does. So, uh, um, welcome aboard to David Drucker. Um, I will not start wearing pocket squares, um, just in case you're worried. And um, other than that, uh, thanks for listening, and I will see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. <laughs>